Well, if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to hold it up and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 7, verse 53. John 7, verse 53. How many of you have ever watched Duck Dynasty? Have you ever watched Duck Dynasty? Raise your hand. If you haven't watched Duck Dynasty, you need to find out where you can watch an episode and watch it. It's worth watching. It was on A&E for 11 seasons. It is the highest rated non-fictional show ever to be on cable. It's about the Robertson family, true family, a real family who have a business in Louisiana. The business is called Duck Commander. They make duck calls. That's what they do for a living. And there are four main characters. There are other people that are scattered throughout the show, but four main characters. There's Phil. He's, he's the father, and he's the president of Duck Commander. His two t- sons, Jace and Willie, and then his brother, Cy. Now, Cy is a Vietnam veteran, and Cy is what you would call a character. Now, when I say he's a character, that means he's out there. He looks like he's out there, and he acts like he's out there. And Cy's favorite expression is Jack. I mean, he always says Jack. Whatever the question is, he'll somehow, someway figure out how to throw in Jack. But Phil and Jace and Willie and Cy and all of their family, to be quite honest with you, are believers who love Jesus with all of their heart. As a matter of fact, Willie's daughter right now is in her 20s. She has millions of followers on social media. And God is using her to share the gospel in the lives of a lot of young women right now. And so they still have a platform. But Cy loves the Lord. And Cy loves to sign autographs. And whenever Cy would sign an autograph under his name, he would put John 3, 16 and 17. And someone asked him one time, why do you put John 3, 16 and 17 under your signature? And he said this. He said, everyone knows John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then he said this. He said, they don't know nothing about 17. And verse 17 says, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I would add to that, the world doesn't know that much about 18 either. 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Now this morning, we are looking at a story that gives meat to those verses. And what I mean by that is the story we're looking at really gives us those verses and the context of those verses. It's the story of the woman caught in the very act of adultery. Now, the truth is many people who have never even read the Bible have heard that story. 
If you ever take a visit to Europe and you enjoy visiting museums, art museums, you will discover that, that there is a work of art in almost every museum in Europe that depicts the woman caught in the very act of adultery. The most famous is at the, um, the, muse the National Gallery in London. It is a Rembrandt painting of the woman caught in the act of adultery. It is worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. But what you need to understand is this story we're going to look at today, it's not found in many of the modern translations. And the reason it's not found in many of the modern translations is like the passage we looked at last week, it's not found in the oldest manuscripts. And so if you have a Bible other than the King James, there's a chance that there are brackets or parentheses around this story. And there's probably a footnote that says something like this. This story is not found in the oldest manuscripts of this passage. And yet, I believe that this story needs to be in the Bible. I believe that this story gives us the character of Jesus. I believe this story reveals to us how Jesus responds in this situation. So, I believe that this story actually happened. I believe it is a part of God's Word. F.B. Meyer, who is a Bible scholar, said this about this story. He said, this story reveals a wisdom so profound, a tenderness to sinners so delicate, a hatred to sin so intense, an insight into the human heart so searching, it is impossible to suppose that the mind of man could have conceived of it or the hand of man could have invented it. And so with that said, let's dig into this passage beginning in verse 53 of chapter 7. It says, Then the meeting broke up and everybody went home. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned, the one who was without sin, throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again, and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go. Go. And sin no more. Now, if you look at chapter 7, you will discover that this story takes place in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of three feasts that, that every Jewish male that lived anywhere near Jerusalem had to attend. The feast had just ended. 
The Israelites were celebrating the fact of God's deliverance and God's provision for them as they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. But instead of celebrating the goodness of God, we discover in chapter 7 that these religious leaders, these Pharisees, had gathered together in a room and they were plotting and planning how they could accuse Jesus and arrest Jesus so they could have Jesus killed. But they couldn't come up with anything to accuse him of. They couldn't find any good reason to arrest them. And so the Bible tells us that their meeting broke up. That's the meeting that we read about. Their meeting broke up and all of them went home. But verse 1 says that Jesus went back to the Mount of Olives. The religious leaders went to their homes. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now some people would say that he went to the Mount of Olives because Jesus said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We can believe through Scripture that Jesus didn't have a house. Jesus didn't have a home. He just built something to live in wherever he would go, wherever he would preach. But he didn't have a house. He didn't have a home like most ordinary people had. And some would say that Jesus had built his tent, his place to live while he was in this area there on the Mount of Olives. Other people say that he most likely went there to pray. And we know that Jesus did go at nights away from everyone else, oftentimes to the Mount of Olives, and there he would pray. I believe Jesus probably went there to pray. But what we do know is early the next morning, Jesus went back to the temple where he had left from. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and Jesus began to sit down, and he began to teach them. And while he was teaching them, we are told in Scripture that suddenly, out of nowhere, a bunch of religious leaders come into the temple courts. They're dragging a woman, and they throw this woman at Jesus' feet. Now, let me remind you that these men were religious men, but they certainly weren't godly men. You need to understand today that there is a big difference between being religious going through the religious motions, and being godly. You see, you can be religious, you can read your Bible, you can pray, you can give money, you can come to church every single Sunday morning. You can be religious and yet not be truly godly. And That was these men who were bringing this woman to Jesus. If we look at them in the context of Jesus' ministry, we discover that they were proud and they were self-righteous. They were ruthless. They were hypocritical men who longed for power more than the kingdom of God. And the woman that they brought to Jesus and thrust him at his feet was caught in the very act of adultery. There was no denying her guilt. She was caught in the act. But let's stop for a minute. How did they catch her in the very act? Maybe her husband went to some religious leaders and said, my wife is cheating on me with this man. You can find him there, her there right now. Maybe that happened. Maybe a neighbor heard them and went and told some religious leaders. Maybe that happened. But more likely than not, Some of the religious leaders that night didn't go home. 
Some of the religious leaders continued to plot and continued to plan on how they could somehow, some way, cause Jesus to say something or do something they could use against him. And they came up with a plan. They would use this woman as a pawn in their scheme. Because after all, where was the man? If she was caught in the very act of adultery, the man was there, right? I mean, he was there. They were both guilty. And the law made it very clear that not only was the woman to be brought and stoned, the man was to be put to death too. And yet the man was nowhere to be found. And they said to Jesus, the law says, stone her. What do you say? But Jesus stooped down and began to write in the dust, in the sand. I want you to think about that for just a moment. The very finger that etched into the stone on the Mount of Sinai, the Ten Commandments, is now writing in the sand. These men continued to say, Jesus, what would you do? What do you say we should do? And so Jesus stood up and said, okay, but the one of you who has no sin, you cast the first stone. And then Jesus sat back down again and began to write again. The Bible says one by one, the men from the oldest to the youngest left. And Jesus stood up and said, where are your accusers? Did not a single one of them condemn you for your sin? And she said, no one, Lord. Now, it's interesting to me that she uses that word, Lord, It's the Greek word kurios. It means master. It means ruler. It means sovereign. Remember the Bible says that if we want to be saved in Romans 10, 9, and 10, we must not only believe with our heart that Jesus is Lord, we must confess with our mouth. You see, salvation comes not when we believe Jesus died on the cross. Salvation comes when we believe Jesus is the Lord of our life. What was this woman saying? Was this woman believing now that this Jesus who was before her is the sovereign Lord, the Savior of the world, the ruler of everything? Did she somehow come to the point where she realized that this man who was standing before her held not only her physical fate in her hands, but held her eternal fate in her hands? Was it perhaps that as she stood up, she saw in the eyes of Jesus the same thing that others saw in the eyes of Jesus, something that was not of this world, something that truly personified holiness? Or was she just being polite and respectful? We don't know. But what we do know is what Jesus said. He said, I don't condemn you either. But he didn't stop there. He went on to say, go and sin no more. Now, what you need to understand is the law was crystal clear. Her sin deserved death. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Don't miss this. In God's eyes, what that woman did was evil. It was wicked. What that man did was evil. It was wicked. And it deserved death. That's what God's word says. 
Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. The law was very clear. And yet Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin. No more. Now what can we learn from this story of the woman caught in the very act of adultery? Well, there are four things I want you to see this morning. The first thing is this. Jesus isn't condemning. I want you to say that with me. Jesus isn't condemning. You can say it louder than that. Jesus isn't condemning. Now, many of us have this idea that God is a condemning God. God is waiting to judge us for the sins that we have committed, but he's not. Now, you need to understand the Bible says that when we see Jesus, we have seen God. Jesus is God in the flesh. If you want to know what God thinks about something, look at Jesus. If you want to know how God would respond to something, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks about you, look to Jesus. And over and over again in Scripture, we see that Jesus isn't condemning. I want to remind you of John 3, 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus came so that everyone could have life through the Son. But don't forget verse 18 because it tells us in verse 18 that if we don't believe in Jesus, we're condemned already. You see, Jesus doesn't condemn us. But I want you to hear me. Our sin does. Don't miss that. Jesus doesn't condemn us. But our sin does condemn us. And what you need to understand is each and every one of us are under the condemnation of our sin. We deserve death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We are told the soul that sins must die. We are told over and over again that no one is righteous, not even one. And yet here's Jesus, God in the flesh, who says, I don't condemn you for your sin. And so if the law condemned her, how could Jesus, the giver of the law, not condemn her? How could Jesus be righteous? How could Jesus be holy? How could Jesus be God if he doesn't stand with his word and condemn this woman for her sin? Let me tell you why. Because Jesus was about to be condemned for her sin. Jesus was about to go to the cross to take her condemnation upon himself. In Luke chapter 24, verse 20, it says that the chief priests and the rulers delivered Jesus to be condemned to death. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law because he took on the curse upon himself. I want you to understand something. Jesus was condemned on the cross so we don't have to be condemned. Jesus took on the curse of our sin so we don't have to take the curse of sin. That's why it says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
It doesn't say there is no condemnation. It says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why it says in John 3.18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. There's coming a day when all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And hear me, God's word will be opened at that time. And our sins will condemn us if we haven't believed in Jesus. Those of us who have believed in Jesus, those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, we are not under condemnation. And the reason is because Jesus took our condemnation upon himself. Jesus didn't condemn her. Jesus died for her. You see, in the eyes of the world, this woman was a harlot to be avoided. In the eyes of the religious leaders, this woman was a pawn to be used. In the eyes of the law, this woman was worthy of death, condemnation. In her own eyes, she probably felt worthless without hope. But in Jesus' eyes, she was a trophy of grace. You see, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you like me now frankly if this story was written today we'd stop the story right there neither do I condemn you we that's where our culture would stop it we like a Jesus that that lets us do whatever we want to we like a Jesus that accepts us like we are he embraces he condones our choices and our lifestyles but the story doesn't end there the story continues You see, Jesus isn't condemning, but in the very next breath, we see Jesus isn't compromising. I want you to say that with me. Jesus isn't compromising. I want you to say it again loud. Jesus isn't compromising. Now, this is amazing to me because Jesus said, I don't condemn you. But in the very next breath, he said, go and sin no more. Now, here's what I've discovered about me and you. Let's just be honest. We are either more likely to be condemning, we come down hard on sinners. I fall into that category. I have a tendency to be more condemning. Or we have a tendency to be more compromising. We even as Christians say, well, they were born that way. Well, they can't help it well and we excuse the sin Jesus didn't do that Jesus did not condemn her for her sinful choices but he did not compromise God's word you see the Bible makes it very clear that God hates sin you read that from cover to cover and you will see God hates sin and the Bible makes it clear that God will deal with sin But the crazy thing is God loves sinners. God hates sin. God loves sinners. And let me give you an example of this. And and to be quite honest with you, something we don't talk about a lot in church today. And the reason is many of us in this room have been affected by this. Did you know the Bible says God hates divorce? Did you know that? It doesn't say God tolerates divorce. 
It doesn't say God condones divorce. The Bible says in Malachi chapter 2, God hates divorce. And if you've been divorced, I want you to hear me. This doesn't say God hates you. It says God hates divorce. And in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, he gives us the reason why. The message translation, I believe, says it best. Listen to what it says. God says, I hate divorce. I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. So watch yourselves. Don't let your guard down. Don't cheat. Did you hear that? God says divorce is the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. God says divorce is a violent act. We want to talk about amicable divorces and all of these things today. Trust me, there are no amicable divorces. Someone is always left hurting all the time. It may be the husband, it may be the wife, it may be the children. It could be friends. Divorce is a violent act because God says when we are married, two people become one flesh. And God very graphically is saying here that divorce is taking that one flesh and tearing it apart now. That's a violent act. Why does God hate divorce? God hates divorce because it is a violent act. It's painful. It hurts. You see, all too often in our culture today, we focus on the temporary joy. We focus on the immediate pleasure. And we don't see the long-term pain, hurt, and anguish that our sin causes. And yet Jesus does. And that's why he hates our Sin. Uh, understand, hear me. Jesus loved this woman. You're going to see that. But Jesus hated her sin. He hated it because of what it does. A.W. Pink said something profound. He's a Bible scholar. He said, God may forgive the sinner, but he cannot forgive the sin. You say, how can that be? How can God forgive the sinner, but he doesn't forgive the sin? I'll tell you why. You see, God forgives the sinner because Jesus took on our sin. Jesus didn't forgive our sin. Jesus took our sin upon himself. Jesus was judged for our sin. Sin has been judged in Jesus Jesus took on the penalty of our sin so that you and I could experience the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God. God doesn't compromise our sin. Jesus never saves us and leaves us in our sin. He always calls us out of our sin. Third thing, I want to hurry. Jesus is compassionate. Say that with me. Jesus is compassionate. Say it again. Jesus is compassionate. Now, this is speculation. The Bible doesn't say this, but I believe that it's in the character of Jesus. Jesus was sitting down, as was the custom in that day, teaching the crowd around him. And these religious leaders came in and threw this woman at Jesus' feet. I believe with all my heart, when that happened, Jesus looked at her. 
he locked eyes with her. And the eyes of Jesus burnt through her. And it wasn't eyes of condemnation. It wasn't eyes of judgment. It was eyes of love. The eyes of Jesus gripped her. Later on, when all the religious leaders left, and the Bible says Jesus stood up, I believe, remember that she was on the ground before Jesus. I believe that Jesus took her shoulders and lifted her up. Why do I believe that? Because Jesus was always lifting people up. That's what he came to do. And I believe with her shoulders in his hands, locking eyes with her, he said, I don't condemn you either. Understand, he's the only one who could have. He was the only one without sin. He was righteous in every regard. And he looked at her with compassion and said, I don't condemn you. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Throughout the gospel, we see the compassion of Jesus in the lives of people caught in sin. Remember Zacchaeus? Everybody hated him. Jesus went and ate in his home. Remember Mary who was possessed by all of those demons and Jesus set her free and she became a follower of Jesus? He showed compassion. Remember the gathering demoniac? Everybody stayed away from that guy. He was crazy. Possessed with legions of demons. And yet Jesus came and showed him compassion. That's what Jesus always did. He was always showing compassion. So Jesus isn't condemning. Jesus isn't compromising. Jesus is compassionate. And then third, fourth, Jesus calls for change. Jesus said, go and, and sin no more. He didn't say go and continue your lifestyle. He said go and sin no more. Someone said religion says change or I will condemn you. Grace says I have forgiven you. Now let me help you change. And I think that's what Jesus does. Jesus comes into our life says I don't condemn you. Let me change you. So that you can live the way I created you to live in the first place. I love the Crowder song. It goes like this. Come out of sadness from where you've been. Come broken hearted. Let rescue begin. Come find your mercy, O sinner. Come kneel. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. That's so true. No matter who we are. No matter where we've been. God offers grace and mercy and forgiveness. See, Jesus changes our lives. He changes our minds. He changes our heart. He changes our attitudes. He changes our desires. Jesus changes us from inside out. Jesus changed this woman. I'm convinced of it. And he will do the same for you. You see, this woman's story, it, it, her story is my story. Our lives are different, but her story is my story. And her story is your story. We all have been found guilty under the law of God. 
We all are deserving of condemnation. But Jesus comes in and says, I don't condemn you. I'm going to take your condemnation. Go. Leave sin. Follow me. That's Jesus' offer for you. You may be here and you're caught up in sin today. I'm convinced you know there's something more. You know that your sin only brings temporary pleasure, momentary pleasure. You know there's something more. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. But I know, I know that most of us here, we're already believers. And so my question to you is, where are you going to fall? Are, are you going to be condemning like the religious leaders? Are you going to be compromising like so many churches today that says it doesn't matter how you live? Or are you going to be like Jesus? Jesus is compassionate. Never condemning. But he calls for our lives to change when we give our heart and life to him. That's how we're to treat people. Not judgmental, not arrogant, not condescending, not condemning, but with compassion because we know they're caught in sin. And we know Jesus is their only hope. And we love them without compromising the truth. If we do that, who knows? God may use us to change this crazy country we live in. Because I can tell you, that's the only thing that's going to work. The only thing. Would you bow your head with me? With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to pray in just a moment. I want to ask you, are you like this woman who needs God's compassion? If you do, I'm going to ask you to come down in just a minute. We're going to have pastors down front at each aisle ready to talk to you and pray with you and tell you how you can experience the forgiveness of God. But if you're here and you're a Christian and you're wondering, how do I live in a world that's filled with sin? Jesus has modeled it for us. And I want to ask you to today to, to just come to this altar and just quickly just kneel and pray and say, Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to treat people with compassion. But I want to call people to change to the life you have for them. I don't want to be condemning. I don't want to be compromising. I want to live like you. Then go back to your seat. Let's go out to the world and live that way. Father God, this is your time for you to work in our lives. And Father, I pray that wherever we may be, if you're speaking to us, calling us to salvation, calling us to, Lord, begin to live more like you. Lord, I pray we won't live here without responding. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Our praise team is going to sing a song.